0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Monash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the show, Dana Olivo.
1: No, thank you, Victor. I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Great to have you here. And Dana, you've been involved in the world of architecture and engineering from a business development standpoint for much of your career. I want to really dig into that because it's an important part of putting together any kind of project, is getting that front end piece right. But before we dive into that, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this part in your journey.
1: I pretty much have grown up in the architectural engineering construction or the AEC industry. My dad was a block mason, so when I was a little kid, I was carrying blocks back and forth and helping him. I have worked within this, uh, the AEC industry, I worked for about 35, 40 years until about 2009, when I was laid off from one of the largest uh, construction management companies in the world. At that time, we were at the peak of the recession. That 35 years, I primarily worked within the marketing and the business development side, working through every logistical cycle within the AEC industry. I started out in the aftermarket side. You know sales, I went into the product development, working for a couple of product developers, manufacturers. I then went into the spec development side, learning how to develop specifications for the construct documents. and then I went into the architectural side, working for a couple of architectural firms and finally worked my way into the construction management firm that I was laid off of. So for thirty five years, I responded to public private, RFP requests for proposals, mostly on the commercial side. And so that's where a lot of my experience comes from.
0: That is a linchpin function in terms of any business's ability to secure business. Right. If you don't have a solid proposal back to an RFP, you're not getting the business. Doesn't matter how many thousands of employees you have or what cost structure you have. If you don't have a crisp response that uh, is cognizant of their process, you're not going to get the business. What are some of the top mistakes that you see people make when it comes to formulating a response to a proposal, to an RFP?
1: One of the biggest mistakes that a lot of companies have have made, especially companies who are not familiar with responding to RFPs, and I say this, the design side are very familiar because on the design bid side, bid build side, they've always done this. This has always been there. But on the design build side where the contractor takes the lead role, they have not. When I moved into the role of marketing with this construction management firm, they had no systems, anything in place. So a lot of the mistakes that they make is, first of all, not responding to the RFP exactly with what they're asking, trying to basically um, embellish a lot of things you know not not responding to the questions to the requirements of the RFP these reviewers of your RFPs they don't want to have to look for your answers you've got to follow them very precisely and you also want to make it easy for them to find like highlighting maybe the areas that they have requested so that you show that you've met that requirement through highlights that's one of them the other thing is not putting the the right team together okay making sure that You've got the right team, whether you're on the design side or the construction side, you want to make sure that your team is meeting the requirements as well, whether it's for a hospital, whether it's for a multifamily unit, you want to have that history of experience
0: with your team. I'm sure you've seen examples of well-constructed RFPs and ones that are rather poorly constructed. How do you navigate that when you get an RFP that is not very clear on what's a must-have, what's a nice-to-have, what, where the boundaries are? How do you respond to those?
1: You're talking about when we look to pursue responding to an RFP Correct. and making sure, okay. Well, first of all, before you even consider responding to an RFP, which are primarily going to be on the public side, you really should have a relationship with who is issuing that RFP. And that is critical because by the time the RFP comes out, you will already know what the requirements are going to be if you have that relationship. If you're looking to just put out a a response to an RFP, it's probably not going to make it past the first weeding of those proposals because these individuals are looking for the proposals of the people that they've been dealing with. So that's one thing. The other thing to keep in mind is... Every time you put an RFP in or you respond to an RFP and you might lose, you want to make sure that you do a debrief. You want to find out what you did wrong so that you can change that on the next RFP and make sure that you're addressing those things that you did wrong. That's the only way that you're going to be able to get better at it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, you talk about them mostly coming from the public side, but I see them a lot on the private side as well. In fact, even my own company, we are often generating proposals for consulting engagements, things like that, where a client says, I have a patch of dirt. Can you tell me what the highest and best use is? What can I put on this particular property that's going to maximize the value? And we respond to that.
1: Yep, and that's on the consulting side. I've dealt with a lot of private RFPs as well, and they follow basically the same guidelines that a public does, except for the fact that on the relationship side, on the public side, there's certain guidelines that the RFP issuers have to follow. For instance, like maybe a minority percentage of minorities that they bring in, meeting a minority percentage or something to that effect. On the private side, you don't have those requirements. You don't have to meet because it's private. You don't have to meet it, but you still need that relationship as far as that's concerned. Now, when you talk about, I wanted to, to discuss just one other thing here, there are the responding agencies or the sp- responding companies to the RFPs. And then there's the team that's brought in. And I'm thinking right now from both a design build and a design bid build side. On the design side, you're dealing with engineers. You're dealing with plumbers. You're dealing with on the plumbing design. And then on the subcontracting side, same thing on the construction. You've got your subcontractors. All of those subcontractors and other designers need to understand what their responsibility is in order to be, I guess, put at the top of the list for being included on the team or on the company's RFP. Does that make sense? Okay. So, for instance, if um, let's say there's an architectural firm that's going after uh, to respond to an RFP and they're starting to pull their team together – Generally, those, that design firm is, is going to have a team of people that they're used to dealing with, that they know that they can work with. If you want to work your way in, you've got to start developing that relationship with the design team. And it's the same thing on the subcontractor side. If you're a subcontractor and you want to get in with a construction management firm, you need to be able to create that relationship and get on the, the bid list for these, those construction management firms. So that they have someone that they can pull from. And then a lot of the subcontractors or the designers might be thinking, okay, how do I, how do I do this? Well, there's there's a number of ways, you know, just go out there and and do lunch and learns or, you know, show you just start creating that relationship. The other thing is a lot of your RFPs will have most of the time they'll have pre-meetings, pre pre pre-bid meetings. And if you go you can get a list of the different people who are responding to that RFP and you can start reaching out to them. So there's different ways that you can do that.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, a lot of people that are in the business of providing these kinds of services take very much a service-oriented approach. You know, they say, well, this, this is my hourly rate and mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, almost bill like they would as if they were a lawyer.
1: Right. But I
0: think you've got a slightly different perspective on that.
1: Yes, I do. What we need to understand, and I say we, because I'm right in there, I'm a service provider, but we need to understand as service providers is we're not just providing a service. We're providing a product. And so we need to learn how to talk and articulate the architectural engineering construction market as a product, a delivered product. And that's where your customer testimonials come in and your finished product. When you put together your what we call the the sheets for the different projects, because a lot of your proposals, they want you to, to indicate what projects have you worked on that are similar. Well, those sheets should talk about and have a lot of the information in there on what the customer had to say on the final product that was delivered and talking about and describing, yes, the services did go into that and here's what happened, but this is the end product. And this is how happy the customer was. So by delivering your spec sheet in a way that speaks to what the customer wanted and it meets the requirements of what this RFP, you have a better chance of getting shortlisted.
0: I love that. And when you're dealing with either a company or an agency that's looking to put out an RFP and they they really don't know who's going to be responding to it, they know they're just going to put it out there. Well, I guess the question is, how do you know that in fact if you're bidding that it's in fact a level playing field and the RFP hasn't been written specifically for one particular supplier?
1: Well, that's something that you do have to keep in mind because that is one way that some firms do kind of put themselves in a position of winning over other, as as they develop that relationship with whoever's going to be putting out the RFP. And I'm talking more on the private side now because the public side is a little bit trickier is by creating that relationship, you're able to identify what you can bring to the table with that that issuing company and help them devise the RFP, write the RFP to what your qualifications are specifically. And by doing that, you are responding specifically to their requirements and you might have a value that you can bring to the table that any of the other responders might not have. So that's one way of doing it. But again, it gets back to the relationship, having that relationship. And when you have that relationship, you're pretty much putting yourself in a position to where you can almost put yourself in that that shortlist position.
0: It reminds me of the times when I saw RFPs in the tech industry where people asked for software that could read and write Microsoft Word format files mm-hmm. and Microsoft Excel format files. And all of the rest, and by the time you finish reading it, you're thinking, boy, there's only one company that can respond to this, and that's Microsoft. Yes. <laughs> and it exactly wasn't really that. an open bid. It was just, a okay, give me your price.
1: Right. It's the same thing when I was working with spec development. The architect is who pretty much determines, okay, what products are going to go into the actual building, of the construction of the building. But there's always like a, an alternate product. That has to be at least equivalent or whatever. But there's some of them that you can't find an alternate. So you're restricted to one. And when I was in the product development side, this is what we ran into a lot of times is how do we get our product at the top of the list for these designers to step into the buildings? So this is why I went through every logistical cycle I needed to know who am I marketing to? Who am I selling to? And what is it that they want to know that's going to put me in a position to where I can win this project? It's a B2B business. Designers, depending on whether it's a design bid-build project, a design-build project, you're doing B2B between designers, owners, developers, architects, contractors. So you have to understand what is their motivation. What are their motivations?
0: When you're developing a relationship with someone who's put out a bid, There's multiple people in the organization. There are folks that are empowered to say no. There are the folks that check the boxes so they can disqualify you, but they can't approve you. Mm -hmm. There are folks that might be able to give you additional insight, maybe give you a back channel of communication. And then there's the ultimate decision makers. How important is it for you to have deep relationships into all three of those? And maybe there's other roles as well that would be important in developing those relationships so that you have a full and complete response?
1: It's very important, in all honesty, because usually in the RFP process, as it goes through, it cycles, okay? You get to a shortlist, which might mean a pre- another presentation before a shortlist team. And understanding, and usually these shortlist teams might be made up of three to five people. Mostly it's about five. It has to be an odd number so that there's no ties or anything like that and you want to know okay each one of those team members they have their idea of what's important and so you want to know what their motivations are as well so that you can meet each of their motivations sometimes you may be able to meet three of them but not the other two so it's a statistics game It's, it's a matter of weighing okay but you still want that relationship because those are the questions that they're going to throw out during the shortlist meeting. They're going to ask you the questions that are important to them. I can remember one of the shortlist meetings that I was at, and the team was up there presenting. This was for a design firm. And I had to say I had a lot of respect for him. The team was presenting, and they had had a problem on one of their other projects last year or the year before. And the question was brought up about that project. And the team started talking about, well, this is what happened, and so and so one of our team members didn't this and everything. And the owner of the company stood up and said, wait a minute, time out here. <laughs> he said, That's not what they're asking. We're not going to make excuses. This was our problem. We fixed it. And here's how we fixed it. And I thought, okay, that's the way you want to handle this. Because this team, the shortlist team that's scoring you, they want to know you handled the situation and you handled it correctly.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Dana, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way?
1: The best way to reach me is via email or through my website. My website is marketatomy, M-A-R-K-E-T-A-T-O-M-Y dot com. Or you can email me at Dana, D-A-N-N-A dot Olivo, O-L-I-V-O at marketatomy dot com.
0: Well, Dana, I love the perspective and something that for anyone who's in business, especially in the realm of construction or development, this is so important. So definitely reach out to Dana at marketatomy.com. That's marketatomy.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.